Alan Schwartz was my tennis angel, a giant of a human being in so many ways. Alan was the king of Chicago tennis. He built Midtown Tennis in 1969, then the largest indoor tennis facility in the United States. He died Friday, just four days after I had lunch with him at the recently refurbished and renamed Midtown Athletic Club. Alan had just turned 91 in November, and despite some physical ailments, he was still as sharp as a 130-mile-an-hour serve. I interviewed Alan for this podcast, and it ran in late July of 2021, just before the U.S. Open. I had known Alan for 21 years and cherished every time I saw him. I hope you will listen and understand just how important this man was for tennis, his family, and humanity. This podcast will run without the usual intro and without commercial endorsement. This week we feature a giant in the tennis world, Alan Schwartz. Nothing that compares with the three now. There's no doubt that Djokovic probably has several more Grand Slams in him. Doubtful that Federer that does, and, and possible that Nadal might have another French or someone like that. I mean, he's still playing at that level. You may not be familiar with Alan Schwartz, but those in the tennis sphere do. And if you happen to live in Chicago and heard of Midtown Tennis, well, he built it. And in 1969, it was an historic structure, the largest indoor tennis facility in the country. And believe it or not, it still is. But there is a lot more to this savvy businessman who also served as the president of the United States Tennis Association. So, Alan Schwartz, tell me a story I don't know. George, in that 50 plus years ago in 1969, rattling around my head was the idea of building this mammoth uh, indoor tennis club, but also recognizing as a businessman that unless we could involve women seriously, and as 50% of our clientele, we were doomed and we would not be successful as a business. And so the challenge, while others existed to get financing, to find the land, to build the building, the challenge was how do you get more women actively involved? And I'm not sure that that, has, that story has been told as much as it should have been told and as important uh, as it was. The first thing we did was to develop what turned out to be the only patented uh, tennis program that the US government had, uh, had authorized. And it was designed just for women and was called Tennis in No Time. I know you've heard of it and uh, thought I'd give you that little background because that's a bit different than it is today when it's for all ages and both genders, uh, but then originally just pointed and targeted toward that very important audience, women. Well, better known as TNT, and I, I used to see it advertised in the papers for years and years and years, and in essence was basically telling people to come to Midtown Tennis to learn the sport of tennis. Uh, true, but the very original parts, the ads, uh, uh, as corny as they seem now in retrospect, the original ad for TNT was a 
coy picture of Mona Lisa with a with a tennis racket superimposed <laughs> in her hand, so there'd be no question about the fact that this was a, a tennis ad, and we were bolstered at that time by uh, the change in the advertising world that began to show a tennis as part of a sophisticated ad, whether it was for Cadillac or whether it was for Scotch. And then tennis clothes for women became fashionable, even got a bit edgy when Gussie Moran wore her lace panties. But uh, the advertising world in Madison Avenue combined with our own program just for women are really that gave us the spark to separate ourselves from any competition. Well, it couldn't have hurt that Chris Everett was on the scene. And then by the mid 70s, and as it blossomed, Martina Navratilova, that could have only done one thing, helped your business. times I guess they know where the ball's going great stuff without question and women actually made the difference because you're open uh, 18 hours a day but of those hours nine to five nine to six uh, are hours that you have to be basically dependent on women except for a few retired men perhaps and maybe a, a small one hour, one and a half hour lunchtime crowd. You had to fill those those eight hours, and women were the uh, were the ones that uh, were the logical ones. It, in fact, it's interesting you you mentioned Chris and and Martina. There was a time when the women made the point that they were better known than the men in tennis or any other sport. They said, "What sport was there that you could name?" And he rattled off six first names and people would know who you were talking about. Only women's tennis. Chris and Martina, of course, were two of them. You mentioned Billie Jean King. Anna became Anna Kornikova. And uh, they became famous historians with just first names. That's pretty important. As you mentioned, women helped make Midtown grow. And as you also mentioned, six first names that people recognized. But in the late 90s, Alan, two more young ladies would have an even greater impact on the sport worldwide. They would be Venus and Serena, the Williams sisters. Tell me a story I don't know what that impact has been. The answer, first of all, is profound. Uh, and. Uh... Before looking at their impact, let me just take my hat off to Althea Gibson, who uh, opened the doors through which they came. And, uh, and a second gentleman, of course, you know about Arthur Ashe, but there's a third one there. Then I, I, and you ask the question that you don't hear much about, Dr. Reginald Weir, and he, was the first black tennis player to play in a national championship. And that went back uh, to the 1940s. He played out of the 
7th Regiment Armory in Brooklyn, New York, and he made a point of, uh, uh, of teaching underserved kids and also making a living by in his medical profession and, and giving occasional lessons to those who uh, were well healed. But uh, those three people really opened the door for the Williams sisters. And there was never a better promoter, in my opinion, eccentric as he was than their father. He could sell anything. And he certainly knew he had a product to sell with his daughters. When Venus came along and reached the finals in the when she was just a teenager, um, he got up right up on his soapbox and said, she's okay, but she's the second best in my family. And he said, I got, she's got a younger sister that'll set the world on fire. He said, and uh, Venus is good, but not as good as the younger sister, Serena. There's no stopping Serena in this Williams win-win championship match. The younger sister, and they come the bigger trophy again. I don't know how, how Venus took that, but evidently uh, as well, because the sisters are very friendly. Selena Williams. <laughs> That's my little sister, guys. <laughs> Congratulations, Serena, on number 23. I have been right there with you. Some of them I lost right there against you. I guess that's weird, but it's true. And <laughs> but it's it's been an awesome thing. Your win has always been my win. I think you know that. What what's the impact then? There have been all kinds of uh, young black women who now have a just different idea of tennis as a game themselves as athletes. The local one that we have is Sloane Stevens, who uh, won the national just a few years ago uh, at the U.S. Open. She, she just, she, she opened the pathway. She served in the 120s. What, what a good man, a strong man, a good server would do. And her sister, Venus, reached the hundred and, low 120s uh, also. That opened people's eyes as to the strength that women have and the coordination and their whole, everybody's sights went up. The power with which you hit a, a woman could hit a backhand changed. Uh, with Serena. Uh, you didn't have to be a tiny woman and uh, 115, 120 pounds to be able to play the game. You could have a much sturdier build uh, and utilize that for power. And, and, and Serena made, made that point. They overcame, I think, a, while well, their dad was a wonderful promoter, there was a, a great deal of pushing and they're one of the few girls that have stayed with the game, loved the game, and a respect for both parents and a foundation formed by the mother. And they have been charitable. They have been a lot of positives. Those are just a few thoughts. You probably knew most of them. I suspect you may not have known that Reggie Weir was one of the people that opened the door for them. Midtown Tennis, which still stands at the corners of Fullerton, Elston, and Damon here in Chicago, has gone through quite a facelift, Alan. You and your family embarked on a rather massive project to turn this facility into an all-purpose luxury and fitness center, including a hotel, and it was at an extraordinary cost. So why did you decide to do it? First, the 
primary credit uh, goes to my son, uh, who, uh, whose background had been the hotel business. Uh, he had gone to Cornell Hotel School, uh, graduated there, uh, was National Director of Development for Hyatt at age 26, and then ultimately uh, joined our firm a few years uh, after that. So he had always felt that the idea of an in-city resort, an in-city all-encompassing place that became your third home. Uh, your office was a home, your home was the home, but there had to be a place, a home away from those two where you could relax and where you could do what you wanted to do and, and, and just be yourself and it became your third place. And he thought the hotel would, uh, would add to that because aside from the people who lived in Chicago and, and joined, there would be travelers coming to Chicago uh, and they would want very much to be able to work out, to play tennis, to, uh, to do lift weights, to do all the other things that uh, uh, they did back home in their regular club. And uh, it turned out that uh, Chicago is a city of neighborhoods, as you know, and uh, wonderfully uh, near here, whether it was Logan Square or some other spots, they became very much uh, for young couples with, with children. And so who was traveling to visit them? The grandparents. And, uh, and, and then they had an activity to involve the kids in when they were here because they had access to the facility. They themselves had a convenient place to stay nearby. And so there was a confluence of a number of things. Stephen foresaw pretty much all of them, did some projections. Uh, and I said, okay, let's let her go. That, that's good strategic thinking. And uh, I suppose you might say we bet the farm, but um, uh, it turned out there was a lot of livestock there. And, uh, uh, the, the, the farm has done very well indeed, except for the pandemic. For the well, and, that, and, and I wanted to get to that because COVID had a somewhat devastating effect on many uh, and your facility included, and I should say facilities, because you have more than just one, and there was one that hasn't even been opened yet, and that's the one in Montreal. It took Correct. a heavy toll, didn't it? That's basically a year uh, at a business with debt service, with key personnel to keep on, and um, it's been tough on us, but it's been tough on a lot of people. I think it has made us leaner. I think it's made us better. Uh, we're back in the black now, which is good. Uh, and uh, uh, the hardest thing, the hardest thing of all uh, was to let people go uh, who were good people uh, after we'd run a month, month and a half with COVID and suddenly realized this is here for a long period of time. You know, what's interesting to note is over 50 years ago, when you came up with the idea of building Midtown, the banks looked the other way. So tell me a story I don't know, how you eventually convinced one, not even in this city, to say yes. <laughs> that bank was the Bank of Detroit. The banker there was a classmate of mine at a prep school called Andover and later uh, at college at Yale. His name was Don Parsons. And we had been turned down literally by 16 
Chicago banks. 16. Banks, 16, one after the other, said, no, uh, that's too risky. What am I going to do if tennis doesn't work? And we were prepared with an answer, a warehouse, et cetera, and a few other things, but uh, that didn't satisfy them. They weren't ready to take that chance uh, until my wife spotted an article in the paper uh, about this disliked, disliked banker in Detroit who was breaking away and paying people more on their interest than anyone else in town uh, and uh, was growing at this very rapid rate. And um, she said, wasn't this your friend Don from school? I said, yes. She said, why don't you call him? And I picked up the phone, invited me up for the next day. And uh, uh, I told him our story. I had, was well prepared with my all, all the uh, architect's drawings and the, uh, and, and the projections galore of all kinds of possibilities and why it would work and why the market was out there and so on and so forth and what we would do different. Oh, he said, uh, this has been a pleasure talking with you. He says, you got the mortgage. Don't worry about that. He said, well, I've got my, my pictures here, my, my architect's renderings. I've got my projections. Don't you want to see those? He said, no. He said, uh, it'll be a very pretty building, I have no doubt. And you lost a little money the first year and your projection broke even the second, made money in the third year and good forever after. Why did you say yes to this when 16 of your colleagues had said no? And uh, he said two reasons. You were one of the guys on the varsity who would be willing to play down and uh, practice with me, even though I would, I would never get up there and uh, playing on the varsity level. I appreciated that. And second, he said, you'd kill yourself uh, before you give up on a point. You'll do the same thing to make this successful. I'll take my chances. Here you are, turning 90, still very <laughs> vibrant, still working just about every day. So the question begs, why? I think the answer is, is pretty simple. Uh, first of all, I love what I'm doing. I like building and expanding. I like promoting and developing the growth of tennis. And the third, kind of selfish, I like to feel relevant. While there were some entertaining men's exhibitions and one tournament here over the years, there's really never been that regular tour stop here. So tell me a story, I don't know, Ellen, why men's pro tennis hasn't gotten its just due in Chicago. Good question. In the case of men, they tried, uh, particularly in Soldier Field, you're probably referring to the one there where they literally uh, took one end of the, uh, of the bowl and created an 18,000 seat venue. It, it, it didn't fill, it didn't draw that well. I, I, I'm not sure why, but that was different. And the, the women's tournament was a real tournament it was sized right, the venue was right, uh, and the, the prize money was such that it could be done successfully. Uh, and of course, between having Bill and Jean help promote it and Bill and Jean's husband, uh, Larry King helped promote it, and Martina, uh, who had great appeal to, to lots of the ethnic 
groups uh, in, in Chicago, as well as anybody who uh, appreciated the genius of the sport. Yeah, Martina, clearly the stronger player indoors. Martina Navratilova, champion of the Virginia Slims of Chicago. So I'm disappointed, and I, I, I wish I could give you a stronger, better reason than, than, than solve the problem of having a, a regular tournament here. We, we miss not having that. And yet, there have been some memorable and historic tennis events here. I've been fortunate enough to, uh, to cover them. For example, the first time the McEnroe brothers played in a finals match was at the UIC Pavilion. The last time Martina and Chris Everett played a sanctioned match, it was at the UIC Pavilion. The first time Jimmy Connors defaulted because of injury, I hate to say that, was here. And then the epic and contentious battle between Connors and McEnroe back in 1982 on one of the coldest days in Chicago history. There have been some big names who've played here. Well, I met one in, in, in January uh, when everything froze. And they, they played out there uh, in Rosemont. Mm -hmm. There were four, four, Lendl was in there and so was Borg. That's, that's right. Uh, all four on that weekend. And that was a sellout in spite of the weather, but not a tournament. That was a, a spectacular exhibition of four of the greatest of the time. There it is. There it is. The winner, Jimmy Connors. John McEnroe congratulates him at the net. And this incredible match, the 1982 Michelob Light Challenge has come to an end with Jimmy Connors, the winner, in five sets. And there was a more recent and definitely historic event played here, the Labor Cup back in 2018, which is co-owned, of course, by Roger Federer. The inaugural one was played in Prague, but you were instrumental in bringing it to the United Center, and it was a smashing success. Tell me a story I don't know. How did you pull that off? Very few things that happen happened because of one person. And I certainly wasn't the only one. The US really felt that, our, our association felt that, that we had an audience now that was anxious to see the kind of tennis that the Labor Cup brought. There were many factors that we go through to choose a destination. We wanted one that uh, you know had a beautiful stadium where fans would wanna come visit, where they were tennis crazy. In this case, they hadn't had tennis in 27 years. And then perhaps most important is that Chicago showed they really wanted it. They've opened the city to us and that's been great. Yes, I was a proponent of it, but there were lots of others and uh, we, we gradually uh, lobbied effectively. And if I had to pick one other person who was helpful, for the first time ever, an American uh, is president of the International Tennis Federation. That's a pretty good foot to have in the door uh, since they make those some of those final decisions. And uh, that's Dave Haggerty. He had been a president of the USTA about six, six, seven years ago. And while he's kept an even hand on most everything, he has not punished us in being ashamed to throw something our way where he thinks that the US could uh, produce it best. So joint effort. And we have some, the tennis audiences in this country are getting more and more sophisticated 
And this was good tennis to watch. Listen, I was very lucky to cover one day of that event. It was something. You've been a staunch tennis fan. You, you've been our guy there in the press who cared about tennis locally and who wrote about tennis. And, and you did those tournaments and you remember them well. By the way, speaking well, of McEnroe, we all know that he can be, how shall we put this, temperamental from time to time. But the, one of those times came at Midtown. Tell us. When we built Midtown, we were careful to install a insulated ceiling that would help us keep the temperature at a reasonable uh, range and uh, keep our utility bills down. And we reinforced that insulation with uh, aluminum strands that were woven into it to make it tougher than you can imagine. We knew there'd be times the tennis players might lose their temper and hit the ball up and it would hit the ceiling and we wanted to be sure it was tough enough not to be penetrated. But one person did penetrate it and he was at the magnificent age of 14. He was playing in the boys national 15 and under championship at Midtown where the tournament started at the very first 15 under uh, indoor championship in this country. And we held it over 30 times. Uh, and McEnroe lost his temper when he was losing to someone that he felt he shouldn't lose to. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. And he, he all day long, he would take a ball in, in his hand, a rubber ball and strengthen his left arm by squeezing that ball all the time. Now he had lost a, a big, big point. He was furious. He had this uncontrollable temper then. And he took a regular tennis ball and just hit it as hard as he could straight up. And the ball went right through it, right through the insulation, <laughs> right up to the middle. It's never happened since. A few people have tried since. But, uh, and that was at 14 years of age and uh, gives you some idea of the kind of temper he had even then. Even then. And here's another big name. Uh, you mentioned him earlier, Andre Agassi. Tell me a story about him, a ball machine, and his dad. The machine became known as the monster. Agassi had played the boys 15 here also twice. Uh, and won the doubles once, did not win the singles. Uh, although his father predicted he would be number one in the world. And uh, his father was a Metro D in, uh, at one of the hotels in Las Vegas. And he said, if you're ever in town, I'd love you to stop over. He and I have become friendly. Uh, I was out there. He took me out to his house. And there in the backyard is the monster. He had built it himself. There was a ball machine that held 500 balls that, that were funneled in from these great storage baskets on each side. And it, and it would, once plugged in, it would run through as many balls as it was being fed. So that meant 500 balls if you had it loaded. And each morning before breakfast, he would hit two thousand balls to Andre from early in the morning till school started. First 500 to the deuce court, first 500 to the forehand side and then the backhand side of the deuce court, and then 
500 to the floor inside and the back inside of the ad court. And then he let him go on to school or drive him to school. That is cruel and unusual punishment uh, for anybody, uh, let alone a kid. Uh, that started when Andre was probably six or seven years old. You were the vice president and then the president of the USTA in the early 2000s. You were a board member for a dozen years. You helped make the US Open tennis series a reality. You got more people playing this sport. You've worked tirelessly to promote it. But tennis in this country has been on the decline now for a number of years. I'm talking about pro tennis. It was dominated by the likes of McEnroe and Connors and Courier and Chang, Roddick, Agassi and Sampras. And on the women's side, certainly over the last 20 years by the Williams sisters. But since 2003 on the men's side, no major winners. And the U.S. is losing tournaments to other countries. So tell me a story I don't know, Alan. What's happened to tennis in this country? Or have other countries simply caught up and surpassed us? That's a hell of a good question. I, I, I must tell you, probably the best answer I have heard was the Americans play to win. The uh, Eastern Europeans play to eat. And uh, I've heard it said play to eat or play to escape. And uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of truth uh, in that they're hungrier, they're, they're more driven. As tennis now penetrates less affluent groups, here, I think you're going to find some of that hunger restored and you're going to find it in the game. And, uh, and, and, and we will get back to a bigger percentage of the ranked players. But right now, I just don't see our players ready to pay the price in training that the Europeans are paying. Now let me tell you a story about me and Alan, and it's a story I love to tell people because it's so meaningful to me. Back in March of 2002, when I was doing a weekend talk show at WSCR The Score, I was talking about my love of the NCAA tournament, which was going on at that time, and my other, other favorite event, the US Open Tennis Tournament, which I had never attended. So when the show is over, I go to listen to my voicemails and, and here's this really deep voice individual who I did not know saying, George, I really liked and enjoyed what you said about the US Open. So I'd like to invite you and a guest to be mine in the president's box at the upcoming Open. Now, you can imagine I am flabbergasted and wondering, is this real? Who is this guy? So I call your secretary on Monday and she said, yes, it's real, it's true. And several months later, we're sitting in the president's box at the Arthur Ashe Stadium, sipping champagne, meeting the president of Wimbledon in the French Open and watching Pete Sampras and Serena Williams play. But before that, you gave us a grand tour of the facility. I've said this to you before, but not publicly. It's one of the most generous and nicest and unexpected things anyone has ever done for me. And I'm forever grateful. George, that's a lovely story. You paint me as more of a saint than I am. <laughs> but, you were uh, then. <laughs> tennis does not always get the recognition or the publicity, which I think either it deserves or, or, or I'd like to see it get. And your love of tennis comes through as you describe the fact that you 
enjoy the match. And, and, and what you, I remember, the, I just was impressed with, with the way you handled the discussion of, of the tennis uh, on the broadcast. I said, we need more people like that. That guy really cares that this is real. And, and you are real and, and you do care. And that comes through and that makes a big difference. You're, you're very gracious for saying that. You know, during your many years in this sport, you have had the great fortune and shall we say luck to meet some very, very interesting and influential people from George H.W. Bush to Margaret Thatcher. Tell me a story I don't know about those meetings. George Bush happened to be living in Austin, I'm sorry, Houston, Shortly after he retired as president, he was always a great tennis fan, a decent tennis player. And um, in 2004, we had a Davis Cup match uh, in Houston, and Sampras was playing for us, and Agassi was playing for us. And because he's the pre former president of the U.S., uh, he got a prime seat and because I was president of the US, I didn't. So we ended up sitting next to each other for over three hours watching the Sampras match. And we got to talking and I, I knew he had gone, he was a couple of years older than I am, but he had gone to the same prep school Landover. And uh, so I, I, to make conversation, I said, Mr. President, I said, who is your favorite teacher? at Andover and he looked at me and he thought a while, he said, the history teacher, Fritz Alice. I looked at him and I said, Mr. President, that was my favorite teacher too. And so that, that we talked back and forth about history and, and what we enjoyed reading. And that, that was memorable for me. And the Margaret Thatcher and I, I'll just make that brief and tell you that it was only because we were invited to a special place for breakfast at, at, at Wimbledon where Thatcher and Clinton and some others were there and and uh, uh, it started to rain and so we were going to be stuck in this area uh, obviously for several hours and it gave me a chance to get Margaret Thatcher one-on-one -on -one and I had this great respect for her and to ask her how, she, how it was that she and Reagan got along so well and what were some of the common qualities and, and what it did for our country's relationship. She was just down to earth and um, that, that was a privilege that I had that would not have happened to me but for an accident of fate and I, I, I feel very lucky for that. You've also been instrumental in the growth of the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center where the U.S. Open takes place. There is now a roof over Arthur Ashe Stadium, and despite a COVID in 2020, which shut out fans but did not shut down the U.S. Open, its future looks rather bright. Yes, is the answer. This year's planning was done on the basis of uh, having a 25%, 50%, and 75% occupancy. Uh, and, and how could it be? successfully carried off at those various percentages. And to our absolute delight, the last notice we got was that 
we could figure on 100% attendance. And that makes such a difference in terms of the, the feeling of the crowd, in terms of the, 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 the excitement in the match. So we're looking forward to that. Television has saved our butt and made last year's with no attendance a break-even proposition, basically. So uh, that was very helpful. And we had got the, the amount of work behind the scenes in promoting an event like that. In the case of the US Open, it is the largest annually attended event in the world. And we, we get between uh, over 700,000, up to 800,000 paid visitors to that event every year. I've been coming with him since 2013. However, I've been coming with my family since 1982. This is the biggest stadium in the world. That's why we come. Matches are awesome here. The, the, the vibe is electric. It's amazing. I would rather personally go to the small court than the bigger court. You can come closer to the players. That's a big number when you figure that there's a week before in, in which we uh, average 10, 15,000, which are just the trials to get into the, uh, into the open and the giant number of people that come in unpaid each day, uh, like close to a thousand from the press. We've got alternate plans at the, at the, lesser, at the lesser figures, but I think everyone's gonna have a real treat and, and we're starved uh, for getting back to a Grand Slam that's played to a full house. Three names, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. I don't know if we're ever, ever going to see the likes of that again. The odds are sure against it, aren't they? We had some great rivalries. You had McEnroe, Connors, Borg. Uh, Yossi's certainly gave us Laver, Rosewall, Hode, Emerson. But uh, nothing that compares with the three now. There's no doubt that Djokovic probably has several more Grand Slams in him. Doubtful that, Fe that Federer does. And, and possible that Nadal might have another French or someone like that. I mean, he's still playing at that level. Uh, but, um, and, and in the matches between them, these are unbelievable rivalries. Where, where, where have you seen a sport an international sport dominated like that is never and in three in the virtually the same era and then you you see the possibility this year of Djokovic becoming the third man in history to win all four slams in one year i mean we we've got a a bounty of riches of, of tennis history that, 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 that's been made in the last 10 years that we've been privileged uh, to be close to the sport during those years. I think we've mentioned throughout this interview what a, what a bright light that you have shined on the world of tennis. But there's something else you do for so many others, and that is being part of the Prevention for Fighting Blindness. Tell me a story I don't know how and why you got involved. Well, I'm going to tie this in with tennis, interestingly enough. But it turned out that 
my youngest grandchild named Alan Rent, my daughter's son, was born uh, totally blind uh, with a blindness that they had no cure of and didn't know very much about. Uh, and my wife first called up, uh, coiled up in a little bundle and cried for days. Uh, and um, anyway, we got talking and uh, uh, a member of our, uh, our regular doubles uh, Thursday game named Dr. Jeff Tabin said, you know, he said, the, uh, uh, my brother is a uh, research PhD uh, at Harvard Medical School and uh, he's got a lab mate, uh, who's this, this woman, uh, and you really ought to meet her because she's doing work in blindness and a form of blindness that's akin to your grandson's. So he, so Jeff Tabin, Dr. Jeff Tabin, set this appointment up. My son-in-law, my daughter, my wife, and I flew to Boston. We met at Jeff's brother, and then he introduced us, and uh, that got us started in the world of blindness to which he was uh, confined. And uh, I can tell you that if all goes well in the next 15 months, he should be the second person they promised him to be number two in a, in a surgery which has restored sight to somebody with a first cousin of his disease. And he will be operating to see if they can uh, restore sight uh, to him. And that has been a, he's now 24 years old. It's been a passion for those 24 years to his, his particular gene defect was found by a lab that we were helping to fund in, in Maryland. And um, uh, we flew over there and took that lab to dinner and, and, and it just was exciting because they had cracked the code and what his was. That, that's probably close to 10 years ago, but and work has been done since. So th that is an amazing, as tight as the tennis world is, so too is the uh, eye research world. And it's been an important part of my life and an exciting part of my life. And interesting how it tied in with tennis that got us started with the right connections to, to break into that circle. It's very encouraging. You know, I ask this final question to all my guests, Alan. If not for tennis, what would you have been? <laughs> That's interesting. I think I would have gotten involved in probably two worlds. One world would have been more likely tied in some way with, with Wall Street business, mergers, acquisitions, and the like. And the other would be a passion of mine, which is education. I've had the, the privilege of being for over 15 years on the board of Duke University's business school of the largest uh, overseas provider of education for American college students that want to go overseas in their 
IES in their junior year and, and uh, maybe a trustee for 20 years at Roosevelt University. So education and its positive effects on changing lives. I think that's probably, you got an honest answer and that's the spontaneous answer. I think we did. Thank you so very much, Alan Schwartz, for telling me a story I don't know. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.